Mank is a tale of old Hollywood that's more steeped in old Hollywood. It's glamour and sleaze, it's layer cake hierarchies, it's corruption and glory than just about any movie you've seen. And the effect is to lend it a dizzying time machine splendor. What a review. Owen Glaberman, one of the best critics in America. We've had him on Cinephile before. He writes for Variety. And Mank is our feature review. That's right, a new film from David Fincher. It's going to be an Oscar heavyweight. It stars Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried, who right now, according to Gold Derby, which I used to be a part of, right now she's the leader for Best Supporting Actress. So if you want to get your Oscars on, go watch Mank on Netflix. We'll also talk about a couple other films that came out this year, uh, finally available now on HBO and other uh, arenas. There will be The Quarry, starring my man Michael Shannon, who we love, and The Gentleman, uh, Guy Ritchie's film. It came out way back in January. Great cast. Matthew McConaughey, Hugh Grant. Big on the Hugh Grant these days after watching The Undoing. Also, Three Kings. I've never seen it. If you go back, our interview with Brian Raftery, who wrote that great book about uh, 1999, best movie year ever, I'd said to me, you know what, I honestly never saw Three Kings. Go, oh, i got to see it. So I finally got around to watching Three Kings. Uh, 21 years later, yes. I was behind the times. That's okay. Plus, we get some major news, okay? Uh, Claire Atkins, my friend, alerting me to Christopher Nolan, just ripping HBO Max. You're going to want to listen to these quotes, he said. Plus, the Oscars are going to happen in person. And yes, Mario Lopez, there's a story which Joe is all over. We'll do that. And Tara Mealy, she's an excellent writer-director. She's got a new film out called Wander Darkly. It opens in theaters this Friday on Apple TV Plus and VOD. We had an excellent interview talking about this film, which Ben Lines raved about at Sundance. It stars Diego Luna and Sienna Miller. Uh, it's one of five movies that I watched this week. And then Mount Rushmore is going to be David Fincher movies, one of the great directors, obviously. And we'll kick it off with Mank. As always, please uh, support us on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, I want to kick things off, though. My boy, Cabby, who is uh, obviously a dear, dear friend and always is a listener of the podcast, he sent to log a review of the film. We talked to David McKenna last week. It was an excellent interview. Uh, so he rented and battled because of the uh, conversation we had. So I wanted to give uh, my man Cab's review. Watch the movie. You were very kind in your comments about it. Stephen Dorff's character reminded me more of Cowboy Cerrone in his attitude and bravado. Clearly, Cab knows the MMA world better than I do. Fight scene was decent between Dorff and his kid. Feels like the kid has some jiu-jitsu training in his roles on the mat and in the octagon. But the premise of a father literally fighting a son in sanctioned fight is ludicrous. Sparring, turning into a fight, or fighting at the house, it's much more plausible, but I get it for dramatic climax. I like that the kid got his ass kicked, but being celebrated in the moment, a bloody mess. <laughs> that was also bad. Great review there from C. Rich. Uh, once again, you can check out that film, Embattled, and thanks to David McKenna. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram, Twitter, all the rest of it. Let's kick it off here with Mank, okay? 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. I'm not smart enough to come up with this. I saw critics say that, yes, Gary Oldman's playing a drunk from the 1930s, except this time it's not Winston Churchill, it's Herman Mankiewicz, which is a very funny line. David Fincher has directed it, and it clearly has his imprint all over this place. Okay, he is known as a meticulous director. I listened to Amanda Seyfried, who was on... Um, the Hollywood Reporters podcast, which is always great with Scott Feinberg. I don't even know if this can be believed, but she said that literally <laughs> they did like 100 takes on one shot. I'd love to know what that shot was and what people's reactions were on take 97. Because uh, I've talked to Hank Azaria here in Cinephile before. He says Michael Mann will do, we're not exaggerating, 40 or 50 takes. But I, I've never quite heard of 100. Maybe Amanda Seyfried was exaggerating, but David Fincher is meticulous. And here's the good news when it comes to Mank. You can clearly appreciate the artistry at work. It is gorgeously photographed in black and white. And the best element of it is not just the cinematography and the look of it, the shot composition, but it sounds like a 1930s movie. And that was the biggest thing I noticed while I was watching it on Netflix was this not only looks like it's an homage to old Hollywood, it feels like. 
like it could be from old Hollywood. This feels like this could be a movie from 1939, which is, you know, the era it's um, focusing on before Citizen Kane is made. And it certainly is appealing to the establishment and to old Hollywood, emphasis on old, if you love these kinds of movies, um, because it's focusing on, you know, that era of uh, the golden age, so to speak. And, you know, if you've seen Citizen Kane, I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen Citizen Kane, you're aware of some of the backstory, uh, taking on William Randolph Hearst, the controversy that Orson Welles uh, faced. But one of the, the, the great things that Fincher did here is he, he focused a lot on Mankiewicz and that oftentimes Citizen Kane, you just think about Orson Welles, but when you watch this film, you say, well, Herman Mankiewicz is the guy that wrote it and maybe not even maybe, doesn't get his due in Fincher's appreciation for him. So he's doing several things here. One, he's making a film as if it's from the 1930s, which is an enormous accomplishment in 2020. He's also giving life to an old Hollywood figure and saying he should be revered a lot more than he should have been. And he's also giving Gary Oldman yet another role that he can really sink his teeth into. He's, he's unrecognizable. I mean, if you see Gary Oldman in real life and see him here, he's bloated. He's a drunkard. He's got terrible hair. Obviously, no English accent. None of the thick rim glasses he wears these days. Um, but he really nails the essence of Romanquitz, which is a guy who's, uh, if he's not standing up, he's falling down because there's way too much booze coursing through his veins. But he's also an enormous talent and a guy that when he's driven is able to really pour things out into his soul. Amanda Seyfried's an actress that I love because uh, I loved her in First Reformed, of course, the great Paul Schrader film, which I feel like this is the third straight podcast I've mentioned it. So if you haven't seen it, go see it. Amanda Seyfried played Ethan Hawke's love interest in that movie. I mean, she goes way back, right? Mean Girls. She did Adam McGoin's film, Chloe, which is a Goyne who's a great Canadian director. It was like his real foray into big budget movies. It didn't do that well. It was Julian Moore and Liam Neeson. But I mean, Amanda Seyfried was like 24 at the time, you know, sexy, erotic thriller kind of thing. And now she's playing Marion Davies. And as I mentioned earlier, I thought, you know, she really kind of nails the essence of Marion Davies. She looks like one of these old school Hollywood stars. You know, she got the call from Fincher. It was like, oh my God, he actually knows who I am. Yes, I'll do it. And uh, she's very committed in the role. A little surprised by the Oscar conversation because she doesn't have a lot of scenes which are truly Oscar bait. You know, normally you figure there's a couple of scenes where she steals the movie, but certainly good chemistry with Gary Oldman and in her scenes when she's trying to defend Hearst and what his uh, angles are all about. All of which is to say, Mank is certainly for a specific audience. And while watching the film, I did find it tedious at times. You know, when you look at the great films ever made about the creative process, you know, this isn't Barton Fink, which is the movie, by the way, I was uh, flipping through. I saw some of Barton Fink the other day, a movie I love with John Turturro. Michael Lerner in particular is amazing as the studio executive. John Goodman plays the heel. But like Barton Fink is a really funny movie. It swept at Cannes. I mean, it won the Palme d'Or. It won Best Actor for Turturro. Joel Coleman, Best Director. Like, I think that's a movie which goes back to old Hollywood, but still is rather entertaining in its uh, machinations. In terms of Mank, you know, this is for a very select audience. So I'm just curious. I mean, Netflix never actually releases their numbers unless it's great. You know, unless they say, oh, uh, you know, the Irishman got 150 million views. Okay. But you don't know opening box office. I, I would just be amazed if Mank was actually in theaters, how many of the average people are seeing it. Because I'm telling you right now, I'm watching and at times I'm finding it tedious and I want to keep the phone away, but I'm like, there's no way my wife would get through this. My brother would get through this. My brother-in-law, my family. Like, it's a very small circle of people, all of which is to say, Mank is going to get a ton of Oscar nominations. It will get Oscar buzz. But ultimately, I was um, fascinated by this movie more with my head than with my heart. I did not feel a strong emotional connection to it. It was a movie that I admire in its efficiency and its artistry. But it's not a film that I would return to anytime soon. I might watch certain scenes again just to admire the look of it. But I don't think it really lands on an emotional connection. And I think to truly be one of the best films of the year, it's got to be in that vein. So I'm going to give it three Maple Leafs because of the execution. But again, I don't think it's for mass audiences. And uh, in some ways, I was expecting a little bit more. Joe, I know you saw it as well on Netflix. Your thoughts on Mank? And, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I loved the, the visual style of it. And I 
loved the sound design to your point earlier um i would love it if this movie not only was nominated but actually won the uh, sound design award at the oscars next year i need to watch this movie again it was mired in you know old studio politics and old california politics you're right it's just kind of heady and dense i just don't know when the next time will be that i see it but do you think that uh jack fincher because you know the academy loves nepotism to a degree they 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 love the narrative surrounding these awards do you think he'll get uh not only a nomination but do you think that he could win the oscar for best screenplay uh, it's a great question, Joe. I don't think screenplay. I think he might have a shot at director only because, you know, he's never won before. Everyone knows what a, a talented director he is. We're going to get into his Mount Rushmore of directors, but I, I don't know if it's got enough buzz, at least for the screenplay. I mean, it may it may get that Hollywood push behind it, but I mean, when you look at some of the Oscar movies, you know, One Night Miami from Regina King. I just saw L. John Wertheim, who's the best tennis writer alive. That guy's a genius with his writing for Sports Illustrated. He just did a 60 Minutes profile. How about this? The guy goes from writing for, tennis for SI, now he's on 60 Minutes. He did a great profile. Um, Viola Davis and her film called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I had thought previously Frances McDormand is going to win the Oscar for Best Actress, but after seeing Viola Davis, well, she might be winning. And I think Ma Rainey's Black Bottom also could get some buzz in those Oscar circles. Chadwick Boseman is in the film. Uh, he's going to, I think, definitely get an Oscar nomination, obviously posthumously, may win the award. So I don't know about screenplay necessarily. You know Sorkin's going to bring the heat, Trial of Chicago 7. He has his admirers and some detractors. But like I said, I think it's going to get a bevy of nomination. I think it's getting Best Director, Best Actor, uh, Best Screenplay, uh, Best Supporting Actress. But as far as an actual win for screenplay, I don't know. I, I would think leading to director but again we've got to see um, what some of these other films uh, end up being right gotcha yeah what was your takeaway from the film because when I walked away from it I I know you know Mank is the main character but I just felt the film lacked a little bit focus was it about you know the studio politics was it about his race to finish Citizen Kane was it about you know the California gubernatorial race at the time for you what, what what do you think the focus was I think most of all it was about restoring the luster of Herman Mankiewicz I think it was hey this is a a guy who's been forgotten by Hollywood and he never really got his due and we should appreciate what he did considering all those obstacles around him. By the way, the guy playing Citizen, uh, Orson Welles is terrific, by the way. I know there's been lots of Orson Welles impressions over the year. Tom Burke is the guy that plays Welles. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio does a great Orson Welles, I believe. I can't remember the movie he did. Maybe it was in Ed Wood. I think he played Orson Welles. I think it was actually Ed Wood, yeah, with uh, the great Tim Burton film starring Johnny Depp. So Tom Burke was really good. But yeah, I think it's about restoring the luster of this guy and giving him some of his due and uh, amidst all the chaos that every writer has to deal with. Um, Wendy Ide of Observer says it won't be for everyone, but in the canon of films about filmmaking, there are a few as textured, as committed, and as suffused with real appreciation for the craft as Mank. Uh, one more review, and again, as you can tell, the reviews have been outstanding. Sandy Angula Chen of Common Sense Media, there's something extraordinary about an auteur like Fincher paying tribute to the importance of the screenwriter, who in the case of this fabulously performed drama is his late father. So it's definitely worked on different levels, but I'm telling you right now, I don't know how many average moviegoers are going to be enjoying Mank on Netflix. Let's make a move, though, and talk about The Quarry, starring one of my favorite actors alive, Michael Shannon. He's always the bad guy. He's the best. Seriously, what's better than Michael Shannon? Joe's mentioned before the uh, video on Funny or Die, which is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. He plays a cop. What a surprise. Michael Shannon playing Chief John Moore. And the lead character is Shea Wiggum. I love when supporting actors finally get their due. It's kind of like when Steve Buscemi finally got to be the lead in Boardwalk Empire after an excellent career playing supporting memorable roles. And now Shea Wiggum, you know his name. You've seen him in Boardwalk Empire, other films like that. This time he's the lead character. No name. He's just called The Man. After murdering a traveling preacher, a fugitive drifter, that's Shea Wiggum, assumes his identity and becomes the new cleric of a small town church while he wins over the congregation, the police chief 
detective starts to link the mysterious stranger to a crime investigation. It had elements of a, a film which I adore called The Apostle, which uh, Robert Duvall made years ago. I wish he'd won the Oscar for it, but it was a real labor of love from Duvall in which he wrote, produced, starred, directed you know, in terms of a man of faith who uh, certainly has his flaws. And this drifter played by Wiggum is kind of looking for uh, his essence. He's looking for the meaning of life after committing this heinous murder and trying to be duplicitous and instead ends up, you know, I wouldn't say completely redeeming his life, but while impersonating a man of the cloth, ends up perhaps believing in some of the ethos of people who are religious and believe that God can transform lives. Of course, Michael Shannon is having none of it. He knows this guy's up to no good and very quickly starts to investigate him. Above all, though, the movie I found to be rather plodding and wasn't particularly distinctive, either in visual style or the storytelling. So I hate to tell you, because I love Michael Shannon, but I'm going to have to give this one two Maple Leafs. I thought it was a fairly routine film, saw where the ending was going. A couple of reviews for you. Ben Kenigsberg of the New York Times, a killer assumes the identity of his victim, a preacher, and goes on to a new church where some of what he tells his flock rubs off on him. Uh, Hannah Houlihan of Screen Rant likes it. She says, although the quarry feels lackluster in its execution, I would agree with that, it's an intriguing story of redemption that's largely carried by captivating Michael Shannon. There's no doubt about this, right? If you like Michael Shannon as I do, I love the guy. See it just to complete your Michael Shannon oeuvre, but it's not a film that I think a lot of people are going to see. Um, again, it was available, I believe, on VOD in like April. I saw him on Kimmel hyping it up. I saw it myself just now on one of my movie channels. So The Quarry, two Maple Leafs, Joe. I, this, is not, uh, this is not quite funny or die, Michael Shannon, in terms of his great performances or The Shape of Water or Nocturnal Animals or any of the other great roles he's done. Yeah, I mean, how how was it seeing him in a good guy role at least? Yeah, that's true. He is kind of the guy trying, but he's one of those like he's not the truly like straight arrow Gary Cooper sheriff at a high noon. Like he's still got some some uh, shadings and malevolence to it. Although that maybe just be like what Michael Shannon brings to the role. Like you watch this guy and you're like, he's never going to be someone who's virtuous. When you watch Michael Shannon, you see the lines on his face and that you know creepy off kilter smile, and you go, okay. Clearly, there's a backstory here, but yeah, he, he was he was more good than bad. That's true. Normally, you'd expect Michael Shannon to play the lead guy, who's the one killing someone rather than the one investigating him. But it was definitely um, had some shades of his character in Shape of Water in terms of how he's trying to investigate something. But he's not quite the sadistic person he was in that movie. Uh, that brings us to another film, The Gentleman. This is a Guy Ritchie film. You know it's a Guy Ritchie film. Why? Not because it's a bunch of British gangsters. Not because it's stylish. Not because it's got intriguing camera work. It's because everyone's calling each other a cunt. I mean, I mean, 10 minutes in, this guy's telling Hugh Grant, you're a real shit-eating cunt. I'm like, all right, well, here we go. This is a, a guy rich movie. This is clearly the way the Brits refer to each other. A bunch of see you next Tuesdays and see you in Toledo. Mickey Pearson is an American expatriate who became rich by building a highly profitable marijuana empire in London. When word gets out, he's looking to cash out of the business. It soon triggers an array of plots and schemes, including bribery and blackmail from shady characters who want to steal his domain. I'd love to tell you this is the guy Richie of Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels or Snatch. Clearly, he's uh, treading on familiar terrain after making some detours of the film like Aladdin. But this is not a particularly memorable work. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. It's got a great cast. Matthew McConaughey is the lead character. I love Hugh Grant because of what he did with The Undoing. He plays Fletcher. You do have Jeremy Strong, who, again, Joe and I are big fans of because of Succession. It's nice to see him in a different role, by the way. He's, he's nearly unrecognizable in the trial of Chicago 7 uh, and playing a hippie. And this time he's got this kind of like effeminate accent. 
accent, and he's one of these like, iffy characters, um, a little bit lisping and all. So it again shows Jeremy Strong's talent as a character actor. Colin Farrell shows up for a few scenes. Henry Golding, uh, also an actor on the rise, he shows up. So listen, this is one of those movies that does not add up to the sum of its parts. Yes, it's gangsters, but I just didn't find the story particularly involving. I didn't find it unique. He ends up cross-cutting between two stories, um, you know, one of which is Hugh Grant is pitching a screenplay and the actual events involving Matthew McConaughey. This is one of those, Joe, that I said, okay, if it was a really good movie, I think the industry would have known where to push it. And again, this came out in January. This is pre-pandemic. So this wasn't going to be a film for awards bait. This wasn't going to be a blockbuster film getting money. They figured, okay, let's put it in the spring, try to go the avant-garde route, but it really did not work for me. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think it's one that I can recommend. David Sims of The Atlant- Atlantic gives a review that I agree with. For all its energy and vulgarity, the gentleman is a slog, a tedious and unnecessarily unpleasant tour of ground that Richie's already covered. Two Maple Leafs for me. Joe? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big ACDC fan, Adnan, and they have made the same album every few years for the last 40 years. And I feel like this movie, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, Guy R- Richie has a formula and he just hits that formula, and this is just the latest version of that. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah, the ACDC comparison is pretty funny. This would be like, you know, Pink Floyd says, okay, one night only, we're getting the band back together again. Guy Ritchie figures, let's try something different. I got some of my Brits, I got some other different guys, but I would agree. It's uh, it's not quite hell's bells to draw that ACDC comparison, or Thunderstruck. Uh, one more movie right. to go to before we do some entertainment news. Three Kings. Finally saw it. Just after the end of the Gulf War, four American soldiers decided to steal a cachet of Saddam Hussein's hidden gold. Led by cynical Sergeant Major Archie Gates, George Clooney, three of the men are rescued by rebels, but Sergeant Troy Barlow, Mark Wahlberg, is captured and tortured by Iraqi intelligence. The Iraqi rebels beg for the American trio to help fight against the impending arrival of Hussein's elite guard. The men agree to fight in return for helping rescue Troy. David O. Russell is the director this is one of those that, again, I just, I, you know, I just missed it. 99 was a great year for movies. And after having seen it, I would tell you that I thought it was a solid war film. It's an excellent cast. I mean, Clooney, 21 years younger, as dapper as ever. Mark Wahlberg, before he started to make you know, too many of those action movies that we've seen before. Ice Cube, you know, small role, but I thought he was solid as Chief Elgin. Spike Jones, who, of course, is an incredible director, had a great 99, because being John Malkovich might be my favorite movie of that year. He also has a supporting role here. Cliff Curtis, love him, because he was in Scorsese's he's Bringing Out the Dead, which came out in the 90s as well. He plays an Arab here, Amir Abdullah, who's one of those guys who's seeking refugees. Michael T. Williamson's an actor you forget about because he was in Heat. He's Colonel Horn. Obviously, he was also in Forrest Gump. And Judy Greer, who I love from Arrested Development. She, uh, uh, first time you see her is a sex scene with Clooney playing Kathy Dage. So I just kept thinking of Arrested Development and Will Arnett trying to close the shades on her. But uh, it's an excellent cast, and I thought it was a solid war film. You know, it, it ends up being something with the strong visuals, because it's David O. Russell. He always has a strong visual sense, whether it's Silver Linings Playbook or The Fighter. Again, here you feel like you're steeped in that drama. It really feels, I wouldn't say nostalgic, because no one wants to miss that time, but you think about the Iraqi war and what it was all about, and the fact that in many ways, um, you know, the... the opposition to it, that, you know, is this really a war worth fighting? And these guys initially start out being avaricious and looking to steal some gold and to benefit themselves and ultimately have a crisis of conscience. I think the best war films end up dealing with that kind of theme. It ends up being a morality play. And for that reason, I liked it. It did not have the uh, conventional war scenes that you might expect in an Apocalypse Now or Platoon, but it did have that moral sense, which I think all great war films do. And I thought it was a very good movie. I give it three Maple Leafs. Uh, I don't feel like I missed out having seen it uh, so many years later. Uh, It doesn't rank for me as much as I personally loved uh, Magnolia or being John Malkovich or The Matrix or those other films from 99. But really solid film. I'm glad that I finally took Brian Raftery's advice and saw it. Joe, have you seen Three Kings? 
I have never seen Three Kings, but you know how big of a Spike Jones fan I am, and so I, I'll definitely have to check it out. And in terms of you know, we know how the re- you know the U.S. activity in that region since this movie has come out. How does it hold up and play into the politics and the foreign policy of the U.S. since that time? Yeah, I think it's able to be rather consistent and show that you know when it comes to war. I wouldn't be as trite as saying, what is it good for? But in particularly, it was situations like this. Is it really worth it when you look at the human casualties and the human cost that's involved? And, you know, I understand that it's, it's tricky in terms of trying to balance one's morality. But right versus wrong, when you're costing human lives, uh, what really is it all about? And uh, Kirk Honeycutt of Hollywood Reporter put it well. Russell not only has designed an action-adventure laced with incendiary humor, but a movie that wants to explore race, politics, war, the media, and U.S. diplomacy in the Middle East. In large measure, he pulls it off with breathtaking aplomb. Also love the soundtrack. I love Public Enemy. Uh, they use uh, Favorite Faves, uh, Can't Do Nothing for a Man, the opening. They use the Beach Boys, I Get Around, uh, U2's In God's Country. Very eclectic soundtrack, but really, really great music as well. So Three Kings, if you've never seen it, you should go check it out. After the break, entertainment news, including an update on the 2021 Oscars and new movie about sexy Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, that's right. Plus, Tara Mealy is here to talk about her new film, Wander Darkly. We give our picks of the Mount Rushmore at David Fincher Movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. All right, some entertainment news here. You're wondering about the Oscars, right? Well, here it is. The Oscars in-person telecast will happen. That's what a rep for the Academy and ABC said. 2021 Oscars are not going to be held virtually. Postponed and moved to April 25th, 2021. Moved from February 20th, 2021. So the good news is it's going to be in person. I don't know how that's going to happen. But the Academy's going to have to suss out details for the live show, maintaining safety protocols. I mean, six feet apart, masks, who knows? But apparently the show will go on. And good news on a personal level, I was bugging Ben Lines. Are we still going to get screeners? I got a screener. My first one, Alex Gibney's documentary did for Showtime. It's about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So uh, hopefully I'll get some more of these movies, which are going to be Oscar bait. But Oscars are going to happen in person, which brings us to Christopher Nolan just shredding HBO Max. Here's the quote. Some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find they were working for the worst streaming service. 
Christopher Nolan, whose relationship with Warner's dates back to insomnia in 2002, that was a statement to Hollywood Reporter. In case you missed it, HBO Max is going to have all those Warner Brothers movies next year in 2021, I believe at least the first six months. Every movie that they have in theaters is also going to be available same day at HBO Max. So December 3rd is when they announced it. Sorry, it's the entire year. 17 pictures in 2021 on that faltering HBO Max streaming service debuting them on the same day they would open in whatever theaters could admit customers. As Nolan said, Warner Brothers had an incredible machine for getting a filmmaker's work out everywhere, both in theaters and at home, and they're dismantling it as we speak. Joe, Christopher Nolan, uh, tossing some high heat here. I love it. Oh, yeah, he's my hero for this. <laughs> he, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I understand why they're doing it, but it's just another blow to the theater industry. And a lot of these movies, like Wonder Woman is a big visual spectacle that probably should be seen in theaters. And so the fact that they're just releasing on HBO to help boost HBO Max, I don't, I, I bet a lot of filmmakers, talent agents, actors, all of them are completely pissed off. Yeah, I can only imagine the frustration. And I get the fact you want your product out there, but come on, man. We, we love the movies. You and me and everybody who really loves the theaters and cares about movie theaters, you got to have people going to the movies whenever that moment will be. This was a story you wanted to do, Joe. I'm going to hand the baton to you. Mariel Lopez becoming sexy Colonel Sanders in Lifetime KFC's original mini-movie that is 100% real. This is from EW.com. My boy Coop also texted this to me. There's a poster, trailer, and everything for A Recipe for Seduction, a 15-minute-long soap that will air on Lifetime this Sunday at noon before heading to Lifetime's streaming platforms. Once again, Mario Lopez is playing a sexy Colonel Sanders, a Lifetime original mini-movie sponsored by KFC that needs to be seen to be believed. Joe, if 2020 couldn't get any weirder, here it is. Mario Lopez, now the salt and pepper hair quaff. Get ready. This is exactly what I needed to close out this year, Adnan. This 1,000-day-long year. This is the exact kind of content that I was hoping for in 2020, and now it's finally delivering. The answer is yes, I will be watching this at 12 p.m. on Sunday, and yes, I will give a review next week for it. I am so excited. I haven't been this excited for a movie since, I don't know, maybe like the third Lord of the Rings when I was a kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is going to be your Return of the King. We look forward to that review coming up next week on Cinephile. And one more, Hillbilly Elegy, which I gave a scathing review as all critics have been doing, sitting at 26% in Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Ron Howard coming out trying to defend the movie. What else would he be doing? I do feel like they're looking at political thematics that they may or may not agree with that honestly aren't really reflected or aren't front and center in this story. What I saw was a family drama that could be very relatable. Amy Adams also added, I think the themes of the movie are very universal, whether it be generational trauma, whether it be just examining where we come from and understand where we're going and who we are. I think the universality of the themes of the movie far transcends politics. And Glenn Close added, it wasn't made with politics in mind. It was made with Ron's intent. I think he succeeded magnificently to tell the story of a very specific family. There are people, uh, obviously, you know, J.D. Vance is a Republican, and it's clearly he's uh, espousing a conservative view, not only with the book, but also the film. If you look at his Twitter and what he's said in the past, he's been very critical of uh, liberal policies. And as we all know, Hollywood is awfully liberal. Many of these critics are as well. So... I get the fact they're back in their movie, and I, I get where they're coming from. I still think the movie stunk. <laughs> Simple as that, Joe. Oh, yeah. And I, I think a lot of the criticism hasn't been, you know, the, the politics behind it, but more than that, it was just a bad movie. And I feel like Ron Howard is just trying to pivot the conversation to know it's actually about politics when really he just kind of made a, a flop. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Just accept it, Ron. It's okay. We all make some bad ones. Um, <laughs> that's when it comes to Hillbilly Elegy. Now time for our terrific guest.
A terrific film opening in theaters this Friday. It's called Wander Darkly. It stars, among others, Sienna Miller and Diego Luna, and I can't recommend it highly enough. The director is Tara Mealy. You can follow her on Twitter, at Tara Mealy, T-A-R-A-M-I-E-L-E. And it comes up this Friday, once again, on Apple TV Plus and VOD. Tara, I thought it was a terrific film, first and foremost. How are you doing? How are you holding up during these unprecedented times? Oh, you know, I mean, like, we're, we're good. We're luckier than most. Um... We're healthy. We're hungered down for the holidays. My my kids have been playing Christmas music since September, so we just got kittens. Like we're just we're like whatever we need for comfort. We're we're just layering it on. <laughs> but uh, kids and kittens that sounds uh, very idyllic to me. Get, crank up the Mariah Carey "All I Want for Christmas." I assume you'll be good to go. That's right, exactly. So let's dive into the movie. It was terrific. I, I really enjoyed it. My friend Ben Lyons has seen it at Sundance and raved about it and told me I uh, get ready to have a couple hankies ready because it's an emotional tour. Uh, just to give people a little bit of backstory about it. It's new parents, Adrian and Mateo, forced to reckon with trauma amidst their troubled relationship. They must revisit the memories of their past and then unravel haunting truths in order to face the future. All of which is to say, this is heavy subject matter, but I thought it was very audacious, particularly in the way you filmed it, in terms of, you know, you're not really sure what's real, what isn't, what is imagined, and what is actually rooted in truth. How did you first come up with this Mm -hmm. concept of looking at a relationship and exploring, like I said, truths and untruths? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think I had wanted to do a love story that sort of examines um, two different perspectives and also like the best of times and the worst of times that you sort of go through in a relationship for a long time. And then about seven years ago, my husband and I did survive a pretty bad car crash. Um, And it was at a point our kids were uh, four and six months old and we were sort of struggling financially and we were in a really, really tough time. So it sort of hit us maybe right when we needed it. And that was sort of the inspiration. I mean, I did have that, I had a brief moment where in my concussed state, I did think I actually died, but it was for a blip, you know? Um, But it felt so real and my my mind was so untrustworthy. Uh, I was sort of interested in the parallels of a concussed state of mind, um, also sort of the psychosis of grief and and then loss of life and loss of love and what sort of it feels like as a relationship is kind of falling apart. Um, and if you can repair it, you know, so that was, that was sort of the, the jumping off of all those elements together. I was going to say, it fits with the credo of, you know, write what you know. So clearly you'd experienced this and gone through a lot of these different emotions. Like I said, I think it's important that you wrote and directed it. Because I think as a writer, if you put it together, you're not mm-hmm. totally sure if the director will see through your vision. But since you wrote it, you know exactly where you want to go and what beats you want to hit. I, I really love the way that you yeah. edited the entire piece. So maybe just a little bit about your editor and how you were able to kind of form uh, a strong narrative in about 92 minutes. But again, you're balancing a, a really tricky act here between what's real and what isn't. Yeah, um, I worked with two editors. Tamara Meme was our first editor on, and she and I were worked for you know months and months and months together. And Alex O'Flynn came in sort of at the end and and brought some fresh eyes to it, which was lovely. Um, you know, it was really everything was like a negotiation on this one. It was it was really just the feeling out. Um, will the transition take too long? Will we lose the the flow of like where the character's head is at? And um, the ending in particular was was. Uh, a, a brave, you know, a brave thing that my producers let us even go and attempt to get the, the dolphins at the end of the film. And but it was always very important to me that it felt uplifting and triumphant, and that it was really, you know, this film is about the the resilience of the human spirit. And seeing her with a buoyant, life affirming three year old, you know, out in a place that 
uh, Mateo brought to her. It was, it was all really important to me that that specifically left people feeling heartened. Yeah, you have to have, I think you're right, some uh, measure of solace because it's such a grind that you're, you're putting the audience through and it's a harrowing journey, but it's an important journey because I think in many ways yeah. it ends up being life-affirming, like you said, because of what you see uh, these two people go through. And I think, like to your point, if it was a studio film, I could just imagine that, hey, Tara, great stuff. Got to change the ending, though. Going to need this, going to need that. A little more uplift. And I, I think it's, yeah. it's kudos to your backing and your company, like you said, that they were able to trust you to say, listen, I'm going to deliver something that's a little bit gritty, but I promise you the audience will be more rewarded for it than if we had a, a cheaper ending, so to speak, or a cop-out. Yeah, yeah. No, I hope so. And look, I really, I hope audiences walk away from this and, and hug their partners or pet their dog, call your mom, like whoever it is that you love, you know, that you feel more connected to that person than you did when you sit down to the movie. That's a good thing. Yeah, you definitely accomplished that. Once again, the film is called Wander Darkly. I encourage everyone to check it out this Friday, December 11th, Apple TV Plus and VOD. Let's get into the cast. I mean, both these actors are just terrific in the film. Sienna Miller and Diego Luna play the leads. Uh, tell me about how you were able to cast them and attract them to the subject. Yeah, I mean, luckily enough, um, it was really just a script. You know, we had sent the script to Diego. He was in my lookbook early on. I think he's such an incredible talent. He's so smart. He's so soulful. Um and he really responded to the script, and we had a lovely conversation, and he came on board. And then his agent uh, is also Sienna Miller's agent. And so she slipped Sienna the script, I think, actually. And Sienna called our producer, Lynette Howell, and really lobbied for the role. Um, and, of course, I was thrilled <laughs> that Sienna had read it and was lobbying. I think she's such um, a character actress in an ingenue package. You know, she's really a chameleon. Um, and she and I spoke, and she was just so ready to dive into this wholeheartedly and, and in a really raw way. She just understood this character. Um, and, and it was a delight, honestly, to work with them. It was very, very heavy lifting. They were so committed to it, so vulnerable. Um, yeah, I, felt, I feel really lucky to have had the two of them uh, along on this journey. When it can be at times really grinding subject matter and, you know, quite heavy, what is it like on set? Are you the type to say, okay, let's, uh, you know, have a few pranks, let's do some jokes to kind of keep things loose? Or are both those actors more of the type they'd rather stay in character and uh, not quite methody, but you know what I mean, kind of just stay in that moment, so to speak? Yeah, you know, it was a little bit of both. I mean, we certainly had some lighter moments on set, but this was not like a romp where we were all like chilling and, you know, going to get drinks afterwards. It was really tiring work. We only had 24 days to shoot it. Um, so, you know, every day, I think Sienna was just saying, every day felt like we were climbing Everest. Um, and especially there were so many moves in LA. So it was quite tiring, uh, this shoot uh, for everybody emotionally and physically. So, um but I think, you know, it was wonderful. We went to Sundance and really had a chance to celebrate all together and sort of like have that joyous like release, you know, um, after so much hard work was put in. Yeah. And the movie earned raves at Sundance. I'm sure people are going to love it now as well. Uh, I would love to ask you about the music of the film because you mentioned the ending. I actually watched it and then I went back again and I watched the last 10 minutes again just because I really liked that music, that last song that you chose. Where did you get that yeah. song from? Oh, it's so good. Um, Tamara actually presented that to me. It was one of the first things we cut when we first, first sat down to start editing after I'd seen the assembly. And um, it's a Heim cover by this artist, Winona Oak. Uh, and I think she found it out of like South by Southwest a few years ago. She'd heard it. Um, and it, it just was perfect. It is, it is like the most beautiful song. And Sienna just told me uh, the other day we were on an interview and she said that that Heim song was actually the song she sang to her daughter, Marlo. It was like their song when Marlo was a baby and we used to dance around the kitchen to it. 
um, which I had not known. And I thought that that was so such a lovely coincidence. We've had several of those kinds of, I don't know, moments of synchronicity on this project. So I thought that was really special. Yeah, you're hitting all those beats there. In terms of the way it's been released, like I said, it's on Apple TV Plus and VOD. I know there's been a lot of conversation, and we all love going to the movies. We know how uh, privileged we are to have movie theaters. We believe in that big screen experience. Christopher Nolan just came out, was very critical about movies next year. Warner Brothers being HBO Max. Your thoughts on that at all as a filmmaker? Is it really critical to have your film seen in a big theater? Do you just say, listen, I'm happy to make whatever I can make, and wherever people see it can find? Where, Where are you at when it comes to this uh, entire distribution conversation. Yeah, you know, look, it's interesting. I love theaters. I love going to the movies. I grew up going with my family. It was such like, a, you know, an important part of my of my life growing up. Um, and I find it an experience that is uh, immersive and communal. And I think there's something so beautiful about actual theater going. Um, that said, I think especially for independent filmmakers, having outlets uh, to get your work seen uh is 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 so important and not everybody is making movies at the scale and scope that Christopher Nolan is making so I think if film is going to survive not only do we have to embrace the streaming platforms we also have to figure out how movies can not cost a family of four a hundred dollars to go and see a movie you know it's like I grew up going to like the dollar theater <laughs> and like seeing a double feature like after it, was, it had been running for two months I think there's got to be sort of a new conversation about how to experience cinema. I think it's it's a very exciting time, a very, very exciting time. Yeah, I'm at the point right now, I'm with you. Listen, if it gets people to watch movies, I don't care what medium it is, I agree with you. I love going to the movies, but I recognize that may not be for all. So as long as they can see films, you know, yeah. Barry Jenkins told me years ago when he made Moonlight, he said, listen, the, the, the climate yeah. has changed. You know what I mean? You, you goes, Either you can make movies for $2 million or $200 million. So you're just glad you can make the movie. Yeah. Those those $20 million movies, yeah, those are, those are generally gone, right? That now you see a lot of directors working in TV, which dovetails to my next thought. I remember years ago when I was in school, I said, you know what? I went to school for radio and television arts, and I said, maybe I can do what Robert Altman did, because he, he worked in television for years, and then he went to, to movies with MASH and Nashville and so on. And in your background, I thought it was interesting. You know, you directed the Green Arrow, The Canaries, uh, Batwoman, Hawaii Five-O. Mm-hmm. Like, you really ha- kind of cut your chops, so to speak, in TV. How uh, valuable was that to you before you made the jump towards making films? Oh, I think it's huge. I mean, honestly, like you're saying, it's like you cut your teeth, Um just even thinking about like the scene at LACMA and we went, we looked at those lights that day and I, I had this idea of how I wanted the image to look. And I was like, Oh, I know the tool I need. I need a 75 foot crane to accomplish this. <laughs> you know, like I've worked with that equipment before. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, I think it's so different being an episodic director than like guiding and leading your own team that you've hired and your own cast that you've, you know, assembled. Um, but I, I've learned so much from the teams I've worked with on television. In fact, I called some of the stunt guys that I've worked with to, to get, pick their brains about how to best execute the car crash. And I think everybody's doing artistic work in different spheres and, um, it all, it all is like adds to your journey. You know, it all, it all puts a little bit of seasoning into who you are as a, as a creator. Well, I have to thank you on a personal note, Tara. Being Muslim, I was blown away by your viral video, Meet a Muslim. Oh. I mean, you use that to combat oh, Islamophobia. Yeah. And I showed up, my wife's Muslim as well. Obviously, our kids, you know, my parents, my brother, et cetera. So it definitely got around in my circle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was so heartened That's when awesome. I saw so many people saw it, you know, shared around the world over 45 million times. 
Uh, it's been a really tricky time as a Muslim, certainly in America, the last four or five years. And uh, I appreciate so much sure. that you took that upon yourself. Where did, where did that stem from? Where did you say, you know what, I'm going to try to uh, enlighten people of what this uh, people are like? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It was like not that long after we had that car crash that Donald Trump sort of announced he was running for president. And I was at dinner and my mother-in-law, uh, we, were, we were just sort of like, complaining, I guess, about how crazy Donald Trump is to talk about a Muslim ban when it's one third of the world. Like, how are you going to ban one third of the world? And my mother-in-law sort of offhandedly defended him. And we got into such a big fight (laughs) (laughs) at the dinner table. And my kids were little at the time, like six and three and, and kind of confused and asking what, what's a Muslim. And I said, well, you know, our friend Omar's daddy is Muslim or your friend Mizan from baby group is Muslim and Mina, you know, so so, and they were like, well, why is Grammy scared of them? And I said, well, she just doesn't know she's probably met them and that they're not all scary, you know? And so it seemed actually like a concept that other people had executed. I planned to just do it in my living room, but, um, you know, bless my husband. He's a cinematographer. And he was like, well, we're going to do it. Let's get a real camera. Let's go to a stage. My friend will give us a stage. Um, and I honestly just planned to put it on my Facebook page. And then um, some friends got a hold of it uh, my friend Lynette Hal Taylor and Graham Taylor, and, and they sort of decided that this was something that needed to be seen far and wide. And Ari Emanuel shared it with everyone at William Morris, and, and then it went crazy. Our, uh, Christopher Slater, who's another agent, uh, really did a lot of work and sent it to Obama and Hillary Clinton. And, um, and it, honestly, it was the first thing I did that was distinctly not for my career. Um, and it felt like something that just had to be said. Um, and there was like no, like time, time felt precious. And I felt like there were no sane voices at the table, and I just wanted to say something that seemed so obvious. Um, but I was very thrilled that, that it had the impact on as many people as it did. Well, yeah. there's no question about it. I'm just one person. I've only got my small circle. But I just want to tell you genuinely, thank you for doing it, because uh, I think it definitely it's opened so cool. people's eyes. And anything you can do to combat Islamophobia or any sort of uh, you know stereotypes people have against any community is really powerful. And like you said, it's often, I think, the most rewarding when you're doing it without a dog in the race. You weren't doing it for any financial benefit. You're doing yeah. it because it was the right thing. So kudos to you for doing that. Once again, yeah. Meet a Muslim, that was the video. And the film is called... Wander Darkly. It comes out this Friday on Apple TV Plus and VOD. It is an excellent film. I hope people see it. I hope it gets awards recognition because uh, you deserve all that and more. Thank you so much, Tara. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it was really nice talking to you. Thanks so much. Mount Rushmore. All right, Mount Rushmore of David Fincher movies. Once again, Tara Mealy, she was terrific. Let's talk about Fincher and his movies. He hasn't made as many movies as you might think. It's not really a prolific career. I'll give you all of them right now if you like. Alien 3, 7, The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, and Mank. That's a pretty good, by the way, hit-to-miss ratio. As I'm saying those movies, I can't really think of any of those movies that's bad, right? Like, I, I'm not crazy about Benjamin Button. I'm not sitting down to watch it like David Sampson and calling it the third best movie of all time. But, hey, man, it's still got its people that like it. So... Uh, let's do this. Seven is obviously a no-brainer for me, a tremendous thriller. It's one that is actually rewatchable, which is surprising considering how dark the subject matter is. 
uh, well cast with Pitt and Freeman. Kevin Spacey obviously showing up as John Doe. I love the fact he had a dark ending and was unafraid to to make that in the studio picture. Like Seven made something like four hundred million worldwide, which is shocking considering how dark that ending is. Um, but I think it's got style to burn and just that whole conceit. That's that's a high concept movie. Hey, Killer does seven deadly sins. They try to stop him, and it works out really really well. Fight Club is, again, a movie I don't think I appreciate when I saw it in 1999. I watched it again last year. It's brilliant. Uh, it's audacious. It's got great performances. Again, Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, and I think really tapped into wounded male masculinity and what that's all about, that somebody is so desperate for some sort of connection, he just wants to get punched in the face. And it's got quite the twist in it, which at the time, I don't think I was crazy about. Now I say, you know what, how else are we going to end the movie? It's actually uh, kind of smart. I'm going to go with The Social Network as well. Adam Amin loves Aaron Sorkin. He wouldn't talk to me if I didn't put it in there. So The Social Network's a great film. really shows about how social media has kind of captured our world. It's amazing to think it was made 10 years ago. It's got a tremendous opening scene there. I love that first scene Jesse Eisenberg and his girl, which is just completely insulting him after he shows what an unlikable cad he is. Um, the Social Network is a really smart movie, an engaging movie, which leaves us with just one last choice left. So as I mentioned, I'm not going to go with Benjamin Button. I don't think Mank is there. I would kind of like to give Gone Girl a little bit of love. I did like Ben Affleck. I thought it was a good adaptation. I love the book. But I will instead go with Zodiac. I think it was a really strong serial killer drama, really well cast. I particularly like Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. I thought it really nailed um, the, the suspense and just the dread and the paranoia. Those are tough attributes to showcase on the big screen, but Fincher was really able to do so in an effective and memorable manner. So my Mount Rushmore of David Fincher, and this guy's a big-time director, I'm going to go with seven with Fight Club, with Zodiac, and The Social Network. Joe, give some love to Panic Room. <laughs> I, I do like Pan, Panic Room and uh, Jodie Foster in that. I won't put it on my list. I'll throw it on my honorable mentions. But I am going to do, if you did seven, I'm going to go with the game. I'm going to go with the game. Um, the, the way he lays out that story, you don't know what's, who's in on it, who's not. I love that movie. I'm going to go with Fight Club. That's a no-brainer. Um, I just reread EW's review of it originally, and the critic at the time gave it a D grade. And then you're right, Social Network is incredible. Um, Aaron Sorkin's script, really great. I'm going to throw that on. But then my fourth spot is going to be for the show he put out in 2017, Mindhunter, a Netflix original, which studies the profiles, the advent of serial killers in the 1970s and the FBI's, you know, first team that they put together to understand, you know, what makes a serial killer tick. And I think in a lot of ways, the show was a building block or Zodiac was a building block to for him to create this show. There's two seasons. It's incredible. There won't be a third because he stated that he's completely burnt out and the long days and the months that it takes to make one season, he's not going to do it again. But I cannot recommend Mindhunter enough. Absolutely loved it. So my four are Mindhunter, Fight Club, Social Network, and The Game. The aforementioned Fox Sports' Adam Amin raved about Mindhunter to me. And my brother, I was just uh, FaceTiming with over the weekend, he loves Mindhunter as well. So you know what? i got to give this a chance. At least watch one or two episodes and see what Joe Engelbrecht and company are all about. Good list there, Joe. Thanks once again for everybody for listening to Cinephile. Please do tweet us uh, at Adnan Esferk or at Cinephile Pod. It's December. It means it's Oscar season and lots of great films I cannot wait to watch. Riz Ahmed's new movie, it's called The Sound of Metal. It's currently on Amazon Prime, so I'll review that next week. And we got lots of great material coming up. So once again, thank you for supporting us. And shout out to my buddy Rick Passmore, by the way. He's the best. He used to be an element of uh, Cinephile, which was so great. He would do so much help with us in terms of putting out videos for Cinephile. 
uh, did a segment called In Defensive. He just sent me the Criterion edition of The Irishman. So, God, maybe I'll do that next week. I'm just, I'm just, listen, I've seen the movie three times in theaters, as you all know. I've watched it on Netflix as well. But I, I just can't wait to watch the supplemental features. I mean, I saw the one interview with Pacino, De Niro, Pesci, and Scorsese, but I can't wait to watch more of the, the features. That's that's one of the biggest things. When people ask me, what's your issue with streaming? I say, well, I just miss the features. Like, when you get a Criterion DVD in your hands, you go, oh, my God, I love listening to director commentary and listening to the featurettes and watching the interviews, and that's just not possible when you're just streaming a film and then it's gone. So uh, thanks to Ricky. I uh, cannot wait to watch the Irishman DVD. Uh, thank you for all your support. And once again, I'll see you at the movies.